Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Welcome to episode five of Changing Conversations. And this week we have with us Peter DeWitt. Uh, thank you, Peter, for taking the time to join us tonight. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Would you like to start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm Peter DeWitt. I live in upstate New York um, in the US. And I was an elementary school teacher for 11 years in some high poverty city schools, and then a principal for about eight years in a rural suburban school. And I left my job seven years ago to focus on um, leadership consulting and being an author. So I've uh, written about six books so far on school leadership and school climate. Um, and part of my work is with John Hattie. And, uh, you know, I get to travel, travel the globe and, and work with great leaders and instructional coaches. So thank you for having me. You're very welcome. The overarching theme of our podcast is around changing conversations. And Billy and I really want to create a space for conversations um, that change how we live, how we work and how we make meaning. And having known you for a few years now and having followed your work closely, I think that you've been crucial in changing conversations and narratives in education. And I know that you've been writing your blog, Finding Common Ground, for quite a number of years now. And I'm interested to know how has the narrative in education changed over that time? Well, thank you for saying that. That's quite a compliment because I think I just wanted to engage in different conversations. Before I started writing the Finding Common Ground blog, I had been doing my doctoral research in New York State about how well school administrators safeguard LGBTQ students. And um, I ran into a lot of challenges actually being able to do my research, both from the schools that I tried to um, survey teachers in, and leaders, and also from the university where I was doing my doctoral work. And I think I just um, realized that many people like referred to it as a controversial topic. And I thought that that was such a weird way to look at it because um, the reality is schools are a microcosm of society at large, I've always known that. And I felt like we always deem these things controversial topics and then we stay away from them. And I guess I wanted to be a part of those conversations and um, learn from those and create a space where we can talk about them and challenge each other's thinking. I would say over the years, since I've been involved in leadership, um, some ways that leadership has changed, or I hope to have helped change it, is that we do have, um, we do try to focus more on learning. Um, the whole idea of leader as manager is something that's been around for a very long time. And, 
and it makes sense because management's been very important to school leaders in general from you know timetabling and master scheduling to budgets and, and dealing with the school community but I don't think a lot of leaders have always had that deep focus on learning and that's part of the conversation I wanted to change um, I was very fortunate to go from teaching in some schools to be to directly becoming a school principal um, without any experience and I felt like I always wanted to get into classrooms and meet with kids and I realized back then that school leaders had the status with them um, because we were school principals so we all like remember our school principal when we were kids and we were scared of them and you know all that kind of stuff and I didn't particularly love that model I wanted to have just have a different space for school leaders um, so I'd like to think that part of what's changed about school leadership in general is that maybe we've been much more approachable to students, not to say that people in the past were not approachable, but I feel like maybe we're making a conscious effort to be as approachable to all kids as possible. At least that's the space I'm working in that I'm trying to expand on more and more. Mm. You said there you wanted to challenge thinking. Um, who or what has challenged your thinking over the years? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately um, because in the US, we've been dealing with a lot of racism issues, um, right? There have been a lot of deaths, especially at the hands of police officers. So that, that narrative has come up a lot. And I started thinking back when I was on my third community college because I was not a successful student when I was younger. Um, I took a class in cultural pluralism where I learned a lot about diversity. And I've got a brother-in-law who's from Beirut and my nephew-in-law's from Kenya. And so I think I've had that sort of, um, the diversity in the background, but cultural pluralism, that class really set me off on a course to dive down deeper into it. Just having people who represent different nations in your family doesn't give you carte blanche. You don't, doesn't instantly make you open-minded and, and erase any implicit bias you have. And then when I became a teacher in some high poverty city schools, they were very diverse. So I started reading, a, 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 and I still read it to this day, a publication called Rethinking Schools. And it was really about changing the narrative around indigenous peoples and around, um, you know, black and brown people or and LGBTQ. So I would say there have been those kind of times along my, my educator timeline that has helped. Um, as a principal, it was definitely my teachers. We, I set a space where they could feel they could feel comfortable diving into conversations, where they weren't going to be reprimanded for it. Where we could actually talk about these things. So, in New York State, when we dealt with a lot of accountability and mandates, something completely different than the racism and the coronavirus and all that stuff, um, and budget cuts, we were we were we really spent a lot of time talking about what accountability looks like and and why does accountability from a from a political angle have to look that way and but from a school angle look a different way and then i would say over the past few years it's been the opportunity to meet people like you um where you know we've been able to spend time talking and then of course working with john hattie um john and i have become very close over the past six seven years that I've been working with him, um, where I, you know, I provide feedback for things he's written. I've written things with him. He's written guest blogs for the blog, but I also present with him. And just a mere conversation with John Hattie has been a masterclass in challenging my thinking. So I would say that 
his mentorship over the past few years and friendship um, has definitely expanded my view. So I've been very lucky along the way where I've had people that I've connected with that have also challenged my thinking because it was maybe like they wanted me to be better um, for things that I said, or maybe inherently I wanted to be better. So I think over time, I've had those people within my family, I've had those people you know, that I've worked with, and then I've had the better known names that people would probably identify with, like a John Hattie or a Vivian Robinson or a Michael Fullen, um, that I have become friendly and friends with. And quite honestly, uh, not to be too long-winded, but running workshops can really provide you with the opportunity to challenge your thinking. Because fortunately for me, there are people within the workshops that don't openly take everything that I say as Bible and um, agree with me and move on and say, wow, that's just like the greatest thing I've ever heard, which I actually appreciate very much. Um, even though sometimes the challenges have come up in a, you know, in a not so polite way, um, they're the ones that have actually stuck with me where I've walked away saying, you know, that's interesting that they would think that way. And how does it intersect with what I'm trying to do? And how can that make my conversation more robust if I really take into their perspective is as opposed to just always thinking about my own. So I guess all of those, if, if I answered that question at all. Mm, you, you definitely, you definitely did. And I think you touched on one of the things that for me is really important. And, and it comes back to the whole purpose really of this podcast is about the conversations that we have. And if we are open to different perspectives and we're open to questions, then that really can create the potential for different kinds of thinking, different kinds of learning. And, and then we can take that into action as well. Yeah. Peter, during this time, you've, you've written a lot about learning and, and leadership. And you might be aware, you might not be aware, but at the moment um, in Scotland, we're planning for full-time reopening come the week beginning August the 10th. Whatever that looks like in August, what opportunities do you foresee for schools to reopen better than before? And what in particular should school leaders be thinking about at this time? Yeah, I've actually been having a lot of conversations with, uh, with leaders in Scotland, actually. Um, you know, there, there are things that, for me, what happened originally is that I came home, I was, I was actually in, uh, in Scotland, in England, um, presenting with John, and I flew home and I was supposed to leave for Australia a week later and it became a pandemic, uh, categorized as a pandemic. So I stopped traveling um, and haven't in four months. And that was very odd for me because I had been on the road almost every week um, for the past six and a half years. And so I, I sat back and tried to relax a little bit, which was a good thing. But then I got on Facebook and I started, um, I had been invited to two Facebook pages, one teaching during COVID, one teaching during the pandemic. And it just, there was something about it that just kept drawing me back to those pages. And I was reading the comments. It, I almost felt like I, I was like I was left out, right? I had been a principal during school consolidations and low enrollment and budget cuts, but not during the pandemic. And I think I wanted to look to see how do I fit into this? Where do I fit in? Where does the work that I do fit in? But I was reading these comments and I just found myself pulling them out and putting them in an, into an Excel spreadsheet. And I started coding them based on the instructional leadership work. And when I separated myself and wanted to look at it objectively, because some of the comments were not nice about students, about parents, but I had to sort of separate myself from that and not get caught up in the emotion of it and just pull them out 
and put them in the spreadsheet and then code them based on the instructional leadership work. And I even weighted them in a weird way. I weighted them in a way where, depending on the number of likes that they received or the number of comments their comments received, um, I even put that into the spreadsheet. And over that time, I felt like a lot of what was being said was not any different than the conversations we have when we're back in person. Um, it was a lot about what tools do I use? My kids aren't showing up, that kind of stuff. So I ended up writing blogs based on that. And those are the blogs you're probably referring to. One was uh, six, reasons you're, uh, six Reasons Students Aren't Showing Up Online. Got 120,000 views in three days, and it's gotten hundreds of thousands of views since. That sent me on a course to start doing student surveys and teacher surveys. And I've got hundreds of student surveys and teacher surveys from many different countries. And what I really took into account was asking students how they liked to learn and what they didn't like. And, you know, as we talk about hybrid programs or remote learning programs, and we look to Australia where we see that, like, you know, there are certain states in Australia that went back to school and now they're back out for six weeks. And there are, there's a lot of that jockeying for permission or for position. It's really about understanding that we have to have a remote option. We have to have a hybrid option. We have to have an in-person option. But overall, it's what do the students want out of this? And I think that's what we need to look at. What bothered me, I guess, in the spring, and this is not a judgmental comment, but what bothered me when I was coaching leaders who I've been coaching for years is that they were saying, we just need to get through the next four weeks until the school year's over. And I get that line of thinking because it's like, this is a rough year, let's just get it over with. But the problem with that is that at the same token, they were saying the kids are gonna be so far behind in the fall. Well, we can't talk about getting through four weeks in the spring and not take some responsibility for them being so behind in the fall, right? Like there needs to be a balance there. And so students really talked about how they liked being able to see their teacher and their student and their peers at least twice a week in Zoom meetings or whatever format we use. When I talk to people like John Hattie and look at the research and look at what students say, they also say that they really want to be able to do some collaboration. So what can we do as collaboration outside of school? Like how can we do project-based learning, conceptual or metacognitive learning from a project-based standpoint when the kids are at home? This morning I was having a conversation with about 100 school leaders in Texas. And I had said, is it possible in the fall that we looked at like the flipped learning style where students get some surface level learning where their efficacy, their confidence can be built just by getting an understanding of what they are supposed to learn. And then if they are in an in-person situation because of hybrid or whatever, then the teacher can go deeper during those times. Or we flip that and students when they're with the teacher can do like the surface level understanding and then give, be given project-based learning for when they get home. Those are the things students are saying that they really liked. And I think from a leadership perspective, those are the conversations we need to be able to have. In the instructional leadership work, part of what I looked at is um, Bloom's revised taxonomy. And it was done by Anderson. It comes down to four different types of learning, factual, procedural, conceptual, and metacognitive. But a vast majority of the teachers and leaders I talk to, when I ask, what do you see the most of when you're going into classrooms? It comes down to factual, procedural, conceptual, and metacognitive a little bit. So it's really about when we look at the fall, 
knowing that our students don't always go through that cognitive conflict or they didn't in the spring because of review, then we need to set up spaces where they can go into cognitive conflict in the fall, where they have a little bit more flexibility in when they are handing assignments in and that they are engaged in some sort of collaborative learning that maybe they're with Billy for, maybe they're with their teacher, Billy, for you know 20 minutes for like some sort of Zoom meeting, but offline, they're doing projects, they're doing a project with their peers. So I think when, when leaders are looking at the hybrid version, it's really about how, how do we get students to engage in deeper dialogue? And the one thing I think we can learn and I was guilty of this as a teacher. When you teach first grade like I did, your day is set up in 15 minute lessons. It's like you're doing 10 or 15 minute lessons all day long and you're exhausted by the time you leave during the day. I think that we've been doing a lot of those type activities in the classroom. And what we really have to do is look and say, have those activity really, activities really created impact or have we been activity rich and impact poor? And maybe it's a time to really talk about less is more, meaning we don't have to do all of those activities. We can actually provide time for deeper learning experiences and, and cognitive conflict. Yeah, and I saw from uh, one of the blogs you wrote that some of the, the teachers in the States, they quite eloquently put it that the remote learning sucked. And yeah. I think, <laughs> and you know, that, that resonates over here in Scotland and, and and everywhere, no doubt, where we've actually lost that face-to-face, real-life face-to-face interaction with young people and just that kind of thrill of being a teacher and the energy um, it is not quite the same digitally. But we're also getting a sense, Peter, that, that young people, they, they want to focus on the, the well-being side of things, you know, when we get back. And however high that is or was on the agenda, there seems to be a sense that it needs to be even higher going forward. I don't know if that's a message that's coming through in the conversations you're having. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been very interesting because when I first got hired to write the Finding Common Ground blog for Ed Week, um, it was really to focus on social emotional learning. Over the years, it's expanded, but out of all the topics I write about, I get the most pushback from readers about social emotional learning. People that say there's no time for it in schools and all that stuff. Well, suddenly, due to the pandemic, you have a lot of people with rallying cries saying, what about the kids' social emotional learning? I'm like, I wonder if you were the same one thinking about that like a year ago when you were fighting with me. So yeah, you know, there's been a popular statement, Maslow before Bloom, and I think I'd rather say Maslow and Bloom. Um, And there are several reasons why. One, because I think social emotional learning, incredibly important, but so is the academic side. And the other reason is why I I have a show for education we call The Seat at the Table, and it's a web show that we started about a month ago. And Tom Gusky, who is well known for grading and assessment, was my first guest. And he actually worked with Bloom. And Bloom is actually the person that created the, the, the words formative assessment, where it's about getting an understanding of your students and where they are in the learning process and changing your teaching based on that. So the whole idea of Maslow before Bloom, it really should be Maslow and Bloom because we almost make it seem like Bloom only cares about academics when that's actually very far from the truth. And um, so yeah, I think there needs to be a balance. And listen, as a former primary teacher and a primary school principal, social emotional learning was a majority, it was just such a huge part of what we do. Um, 
that I think we do have to find that balance. And that's why, you know, even in Hattie's work, he talks about teacher-student relationships and people all of them ultimately jump to the conclusion that that means we have to, you know, we have to get to know every student's names, which is really, really important. Um, but that's not it. It's about getting to know them, getting to understand the best way that they learn, which is what I started to do with the student surveys that I've collected and other schools are doing. And then using that data, that evidence, to understand how to change our instructional strategies so we can kind of enhance that experience in the classroom. So it definitely takes both. One of the things that I often hear uh, teachers and, and school leaders talk about, and um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Billy, but there's often a narrative of there isn't enough time to do stuff. And I think, you know... I, I've that heard that once or twice. Yeah, <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> Thought you might have heard it but you know <laughs> I was open to challenge there um, and I just think it's an interesting one because I, I, I understand where it comes from but I also think there's something we need to move away from that as well or we need to shift that narrative or we need to do something about it and I'm not sure that I have a question in that more more a reflection but I suppose do you have any insights or reflections on that from your work Peter and your connections with with schools around the world? Yeah, it's probably um, not what people want to hear, but it's about how do we spend our time? Because I, I think about that quite often. I am, believe me, I am a workaholic. And uh, I found that when I was traveling, you know, in between presentations and stuff, I was doing a ton of work. So when I'm at home now for this extended period of time, you start to realize how much of a workaholic you really have been. And I think it's about reflecting on how we spend our time. And it kind of go, also goes along with what I was saying to Billy earlier with, we spend so much time planning these lessons, but it's almost like we spend time getting where we want to actually get through the learning, which is important. And we forget about the conversation that goes along with it. And so I think the time frame thing is how do we spend our time in general? I really had to look at working smarter not harder we know that's a you know famous statement from someone but i think it does go along with that on the flip side of that not to contradict myself <laughs> but what we also have to look at is the government government in scotland the government uh, you know across the uk a government uh, god knows the united states is completely messed up where that's concerned um but looking at the government and the amount of accountability and the amount of initiatives that school districts face. So we, there is part that we're responsible for where we have to look at our own time and how we spend it. Mm -hmm. But on the same side, on the, in the same token, we have to look at the amount of um, accountability that is pressed upon us and that we can't possibly keep doing what we've been doing. And that's why the coronavirus, if there are any positives that come out of the coronavirus, and perhaps I'm too much of a realist, is that the accountability piece has really been gone for, for teachers in the way that there were schools that went to a no harm grading policy. So um, they didn't have to worry about grading. They could relax some of that pressure that they felt to get the content all through. And that's where they started creating space for project-based learning. But on the other side of that is that um, students didn't feel accountable either, meaning that they weren't their grade may not change at all. So some of them stop showing up. Um, and that's where I think the deeper learning conversation has come along. So I think there's, a, there's a, a part of this that we need to own as far as looking at how we spend our time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I say that because I remember working with a teacher when I was a very young principal in a very big school outside of New York City. And I would leave, the day ended at about 3.15 and I would get on the road at about four o'clock because I had an hour commute. And I would do work back at home, but I wanted to make sure I left it forward to beat traffic. And I remember this veteran teacher came to me and said, I don't know how you get to leave so early. You know, I'm here all night. And then I watched her go from classroom to classroom to talk to different teachers along the hallway. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's a correlation between how many times you stop to have a conversation in different classrooms and the amount of work you actually get done back in your classroom. So I think we need to own some of that. And then we need to be able to have a larger discussion about the fact that we have way, way too much accountability pressures put upon us from state governments in the United States or state governments in Australia or you know, federal government as well. And it's definitely something we have to be able to talk about and work through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that I often find myself talking and supporting school leaders with is the gap between what they aspire to be happening within their schools and across their classrooms and within their school community and what is actually happening. And I know that your, your latest book on instructional leadership also references this. Um, do you have any advice or um, insights for leaders about how they can close that implementation gap? Yeah, I'm a big fan of these days of the program logic model you know I made mine very simple they can be quite complicated but mine really comes down to um, you know your needs understanding your current reality um, was your evidence showing you as far as the improvement you want to work on um, the inputs which would be the resources that you need to to really help on that improvement and much to what we were just talking about earlier time is a factor that we have to put on the inputs because time is a resource um, in the middle is activities. What are the activities that we actually do that are going to help us create that improvement and impact student learning? Outputs would be the next step, the fourth step, and that's where we um, actually take actionable steps. We actually look at those activities we want to do and the outputs are how we put those into place. Um, it's a timestamp on those because many times we talk about change, but we two years go by and we haven't made that change. So outputs is about the timestamp. And then last but not least is impact. The fifth, the fifth part, the fifth stage, whatever we want to call it, is about impact. And how is this going to positively impact students and teachers? And if it's not going to positively impact students and teachers, then maybe we shouldn't do it in the first place. Now, when I go through the program logic model with districts and schools that I work with, um, there, are, there have been times that they, they list a load of activities that they've been doing. But when we come to impact, they don't have a great deal of impact. And I wrote a blog called, Are You Activity Rich and Impact Poor? Because of that very issue. The other thing that I need to say there is that as a principal, I did not have assistant principals or vice principals. I had my teachers. So we had a principal's advisory council and I had two co-chairs, it was not me. Um, I had two co-chairs and then I had representatives from each grade level and special area. And then I was a member of the group and we talked and went through how could we have a deeper impact on our school building. So we were more than activity rich and impact poor. We, we wanted to know we were having a positive impact on student learning. Too often leaders feel for one reason or another, it could be the pressures they feel from their superiors above them or their ego. They don't take into account enough teacher voice. And I felt like when I walked into one meeting 
Um, I wanted to walk out with a better, when I walked into one meeting with an idea, I wanted to walk out with a better idea. And that was because of the collective effort of my staff or whoever it happened to be working with. Too many leaders walk into a meeting with one idea and they walk out with the same one. And I don't think that that's great leadership because if you're gonna walk out with the same idea you walked in with, then why are you having the meeting in the first place? So that whole element behind implementation and the reason why sometimes it's flawed or there's the implementation bit that Michael Fullen talks about is that we don't have enough of those conversations with our staff and then we, I, I really, I, I had worked in places where teachers were vilified just because they disagreed with administrators. And I, I don't think that's a great way to operate. Just because Sarah disagrees with me doesn't mean Sarah is ultimately bad and I'm gonna talk behind her back after she walks out of my office. It means that she's given me some information that I need to be able to think about. So if we really wanna tighten up that program logic model process I just talked about and deepen our implementation, then we have to make sure we're having open and honest conversations with our staff, which is what you and Billy obviously are trying to focus on too, which is changing that narrative within our schools and getting teachers to understand that when they push back on some of our ideas, that's not a rude thing. It actually could make us come to a much deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. And often that resistance comes from the, the difference between the way a teacher does something at the moment and the way you're asking them to do it. And if they believe this works in this way and gets this result, asking them to change to that without enough understanding and discussion and, and dialogue, you can kind of see why people resist that change. Yeah, I um, when I started writing about the program logic model in the book, um, one of the ideas that I had been speaking about was the idea of common language and common understanding. Because we often have a common language around things like student engagement or growth mindset or multiple intelligences. But we don't have a common understanding of what those mean. So if Billy is one of my teachers and I'm the principal and I say to Billy, um, you know, I'm doing my learning walk or walk through and I'm focusing on student engagement. Well, Billy might be really excited and say, oh, cool, you know, student engagement. I love authentic engagement. My kids are up and moving. They're having dialogue. I hardly speak. But what Billy doesn't understand because we've never discussed it is that I believe in compliant engagement. So when I go to Billy's classroom, I expect to see the kids sitting down in the rows and Billy teaching because that's what I pay him for. And when I look and see that the kids are up and moving, I might look at Billy and say, I'll come back when you're teaching, which is really going to make him mad. Or I might say, well, Billy, you have a real classroom management issue there. When that's really not what's going on, it's the fact that we have two different ideas. So we use common language, but we don't always have that common understanding. And we know it's an issue because um, a few years ago, I wrote a blog called Why the Growth Mindset Won't Work. And I talked about that. We don't have a common understanding of what the growth mindset means, even though we think we do, because it's just such a famous statement. Well, that blog got hundreds of thousands of views. And Carol Dweck ended up writing a, a response a couple of months later for Edweek. She contacted my editor. And, you know, so we've got... Carol Dweck talking and clarifying the growth mindset. Howard Gardner did it for multiple intelligences for the Washington Post. Uh, Caroline Tomlinson would differentiate instruction. So some of the most famous statements in education, we know that the very researchers behind them had to clarify what they meant. So it just shows that we don't have a common language and common understanding. So much of what you're saying, Sarah, is that like using that program logic model, one of the best ways you can do it is define the common language and common understanding 
with your staff, like what is a walkthrough? What does it look like? What are we supposed to be looking for when we're going through there? When we say student engagement, what does student engagement actually mean? Differentiated instruction, what does it actually mean? Those are the things that I think are really the nuances and the, um, the really important, maybe hot button touch points that we need to be able to discuss within our schools. It's interesting because at the moment, Peter, probably the, one of the phrases that you would hear quite common in Scottish education, um, certainly pre-COVID, was about empowerment of, of everyone in, in the system to work together to empower at every level to improve outcomes for children and young people. But similar to what, what you're saying, empowerment is just a word and it's the, the values and the communication that, that underpin and actually you know, how that plays out on, on the ground. So we want to finish this section maybe just by building and pulling together what you've said there. And we're going to give you ultimate power. So if, if, you could, if you could change anything, if you had one wish for education going forward, for educational leadership going forward, what would it be? I would love for leaders and teachers to be able to have a deeper sense of being able to talk about learning. Like, I think it's fun to talk about instructional strategies or student engagement. I think, and many people might look at that and say, well, that's common sense, but it's not. Actually, instructional leadership is one of the most researched forms of school leadership over the past five decades. But what we know is that not a lot of leaders actually feel like they can be instructional leaders, that they can feel like they can talk about learning. So diving into those conversations, I think, could be really, really important. Um, and I would love to see that happen. I've been doing a lot with Student Voice lately, with the show that I'm doing with Ed Week, uh, Seat at the Table. My great nephew is going in eighth grade. He actually asks a question I call it a question from Tubbin. So I'm gonna go in and, you know, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody like John Hattie or Carol Dweck's gonna be on in September, Tubbin actually, um, I videotape him asking a question that's really coming from him. And I love hearing that. Like, I love hearing the way he is ticking and thinking and growing as a learner. And I, I wish we could spend more time doing that because I am a guy that um, I, I barely graduated from high school. I was actually very unsuccessful as a learner. Uh, I was retained in elementary school and struggled throughout my schooling. And, uh, you know, it, even though it sort of made me who I am and I'm resilient, and I got through it and I'm better for it. There are a lot of kids that I think we've lost because maybe they didn't have that, that resilience. And we really need to tap into what does learning look like and how can we expand on that view so we can actually engage more students. Uh, Odatella from 1972 did this research that shows that our students feel alienated for one of two reasons or both reasons. Number one, they don't feel like they have a voice in their own learning. Or number two, they don't have an emotional connection to their school community. And when that happens, that has devastating impact on the fact that maybe kids drop out of school or they graduate from high school and they never move on to do anything. They never find those passion projects. So when I say talking about learning like that, it's not just this fun thing that we need to be able to do um, back in school. It's actually vitally important because we lose too many kids um, who leave us not really having that passion project they want to join into. And I think we need to do a better job of expanding on learning so we can tap into those.
we finish each podcast with the same three questions for our guests. So I'd like to start by asking you what you wanted to be when you were growing up. I had no idea. Um, you know, when I was when I was growing up, my my dad passed when I was young, and my mom went back to get her general equivalency diploma. Um, so when I graduated, I was the youngest of five, and I I fell out of a couple of community colleges because I simply had no idea what I wanted to do. The interesting part, as I look past, my sister works at a college, so she had me do this um, career test, like what might I want to be when I grow up. And interestingly enough, it said I wanted to be a teacher and a writer. And uh, I swear to you, I was like, I was 19 when I took the test. And I remember seeing the results and like, this thing is crap. This is like, this thing is so wrong. I could never be a teacher or a writer. Uh, you know, I can't even get through school. So um, I, when I got to my third community college, I started working at an after school program because I needed a job. I was, <laughs> I was putting myself through college. And I started working at the after school program for elementary school. And um, it was just amazing. Uh, I, got to, I don't know if it reminds me of a simpler time before my dad passed, if it was just playing kickball with kids and you know, all that stuff on the playground. There was just something there that I thought, wow, I want, like, this is a great age to be working with. And then I ultimately um, started doing some volunteering in schools, and, and that's where I realized that I wanted to become a teacher. So I would say since the age of about 20 years old, um, I definitely wanted to be, I, I wanted to be a teacher. Never had the intention of being a principal, but, uh, but that's how life goes sometimes. I was laughing there when you were saying that you took a test and it kind of came up with things. I also did that when I was at school. And what came up for me was number one was I would be a milliner, a hat maker. Okay. Um, and the second one was educational psychologist. And I did become an educational psychologist. So now I have this idea that I am going to become a hat maker in the future as well. So that would be really awesome. I would love to see that. So we need to expand on that, Sarah. I know. I, I can't imagine it myself, but there we go. We'll see what happens. So the, the second question is, what work-related book are you reading at the moment? So I'm really, um, well, there's a new one that just came out, and I, it happens to be next to me. I got it delivered yesterday. It's 10 Mind Frames for Leaders. So I wrote a chapter, Jenny Donahue, Michael Fallon, Jim Knight. Um, and it was, you know, edited by, by John Hattie and Ray Smith. So that's something that I want to take a look at. To be honest with you, I have, um, I'm in the process of writing a new book. So I, I haven't, haven't been writing, I haven't been reading a lot of other books yet, as much as I've actually been um, reading educational research. And then um, because of the fact that I write the blog and post once a week, I am spending a lot of time reading the work of the people that I'm about to interview. So that's my real like uh, weird way to circle around and say, I'm not really reading an educational book right now, but there are reasons why I'm not reading an educational book. I'm spending more time these days reading research, which I, I absolutely love, and um, reading some articles to better prepare me for the interviews that I do. Thank you. And just to say, while we're talking about your, your books as well, we will put links in the episode notes to your books and your blog and your Twitter handle and things like that. So anyone who's yeah. listening and is interested can uh, get that information easy. Final question today, Peter. 
is there a quote that you'd like to share with us and our listeners that resonates for you at the moment? Okay, so um, one of the quotations that I just heard recently, I interviewed Zaretta Hammond, who does a lot of work in equity um, around the United States, and I interviewed her uh, about cultural responsive teaching, and it was a, it was actually a, a a very challenging conversation. Uh, there's pushback on both sides and deep uh, racism, talking about racism and things. One of the things that I mentioned to her was there was a question that came up from the audience about an achievement gap. And Zaretta Hammond said, we had a learning gap that became an opportunity gap, which then became an achievement gap. And I really felt like that was, um, sort of that was a a profound uh, quotation for me that I've been doing a lot of thinking about and probably one of the reasons why I said we need to focus a great deal more on what learning looks like. Yeah that's a wonderful deep quote sure will give our listeners something to to ponder. Peter thanks so much for joining us this evening as it is in Scotland and this afternoon as it is where where you are. It's been really great to to meet you um, and talk to you. Thanks so much for your contribution to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a great talking to the two of you. Always good to talk to you, Peter. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and please join us again for the next one. In the meantime, you can get involved with the conversation via Twitter or by seeing the episode notes for our contact details. Thank you again from both of us. Stay safe and take good care.